This week we're returning to going through preaching expositorily in Acts, going back to follow up from the first part of Acts chapter 15. If you remember in the first part of Acts chapter 15, Paul and Barnabas, they had encountered some men uh, who were Judaizers who had come into the church and were saying that you had to be circumcised in order to be a Christian. So they debated with them because it was a gospel issue and they went back to Jerusalem and they clarified, is this really the gospel? And then after that, the Jerusalem council, they, they convened the apostles and elders in the church and they said, no, you don't need to do any works to be saved. It's salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone. But there's some areas where you might need to defer to one another. And so now this passage is really on the heels of that. So if you'll turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 15, we'll be going from verse 36 through 16, verse 5. This is God's holy, inspired word. And after some days, Paul said to Barnabas, let us return and visit the brothers in every city where we could proclaim the word of the Lord and see how they are. Now Barnabas wanted to take with them John called Mark. But Paul thought best not to take with them one who had withdrawn from them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. And there arose a sharp disagreement so that they separated from each other. Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed away to Cyprus. But Paul chose Silas and departed, having been commended by the brothers to the grace of the Lord. And he went through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. Paul came also to Derbe and to Lystra. A disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was a Greek. He was well spoken of by the brothers at Lystra and Iconium. Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him, And he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those places. For they all knew that his father was a Greek. As they went on their way through the cities, they delivered to them for observance the decisions that had been reached by the apostles and elders who were in Jerusalem. So the churches were strengthened in the faith and they increased in numbers daily. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word that is profitable for us in every area of life. Thank you, God, that your word addresses really practical areas of our lives. Lord, it addresses areas of conflict. Father, I pray that this morning you would reveal our hearts to us, God, where we have disagreements, our conflict. And I pray, Father, that you would speak into our hearts through your word, that we would submit our desires to you, Lord, that we would, in light of the good news of Jesus Christ that has made us alive in you when we didn't deserve it, that's given us undeserved mercy and grace and new life, God, I pray that that would be our motivation as we relate to other people. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Well, some people really love, especially this time of the year, the fable, and I say fable, of Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer, right? How many people have, have, have seen that, that movie maybe from the 70s, that really terrible claymation movie from the 70s? Excellent. Well, the story, it's a really well-known story, Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer. If you haven't seen it, the story goes, all, the, all these other talking reindeer, really plausible, right? All these talking reindeer, they, they won't let him participate in the reindeer games because he's different. And so they mock him, they tease him, and 
whatever those reindeer games are, I'm not really sure. Maybe it's the 100 Country Dash, the um, Chimney Slalom. We don't know, but so we're never really told in the movie. It's kind of, I'm always left hanging. What are those reindeer games? I mean, reindeer badminton, what do they do? But uh, so they, they make fun of him and they, they isolate him because of his red nose. And then one redemptive Christmas morning, or sorry, New Year, I guess Christmas Eve, right? When we to Christmas Eve, Santa comes to him and he says, because your nose is so bright, could you, could you guide our sleigh tonight? And um, what, a, what a wonderful story. All the other reindeer loved him and saw that he had value. Right? That's a good story, right? Right? When I think of the story of Rudolph, I, I think of reindeer rejecting another reindeer just because he looked different from them. And then I think, in the end, this isn't a good story at all. They only accepted him because he could do something for them. They only accepted, they accepted him for all the wrong reasons, not because they say, hey, he intrinsically has value because he's a fellow reindeer. No. They accepted him because he could do something, because he's shown the way, because he was bright. And then they're like, oh, you're good. You know, you do have value after all. So put it that way, it's a bummer of a story, right? I hope I just didn't ruin that for all the kids in the room, by the way. So. I'm kind of okay if I did, but... Um, <laughs> You know, there's two ways of looking at a story like that, right? And there's different conclusions that you can draw. We live kind of in a day and an age when we are increasingly aware of differences with other people, aren't we? And I think that the connected age that we live in, it doesn't do anything to get rid of those differences. Sometimes it really heightens those differences, and it it reveals how many differences there are amongst not just the people of the world, but amongst people in the church, just take a second, look around for a moment. I mean, don't, I know it's going to be weird, but so just look around for a moment. We, we're different, aren't we? We are a different group. Our differences sometimes are highlighted, hopefully not in this church. We pray by God's grace. But in the world around us, we see that sometimes our differences are highlighted as a reason for segregation or separation. Our differences, they can range widely too. Some can be profound while others are really quite superficial. Some of the differences are we have, we have different shades and colors of skin. Nobody knows what nationality I really am because it varies from season to season how dark I am. I go to different countries. I think I'm from different places. But, so those, those can be superficial, but they can be very profound. We have different color of skin. There can be different socioeconomic backgrounds, different kinds of, of accents that we speak with. In this room, there's many different kinds of accents. You know, I believe those kinds of differences, differences in, in, in the color of skin and height and weight and size and appearance and difference in the way we speak, I actually think those are God-given differences to magnify His multifaceted glory. To show us that, that God is, is multifaceted in his grace. And he's too wondrous to behold. And so he reveals that in the diversity of people. And that's a good difference that we're meant to, to enjoy. Not to ignore, but to highlight and enjoy. Other differences that weren't so clearly addressed or resolved... They may not be moral issues, even though we can feel strongly about a lot of differences, can't we? Do you ever feel strongly about differences they have with other people? Maybe you had some differences this morning on the way over here in your car, or maybe you have differences with your kids or your wife or your, your siblings. What do we do when differences come up in the church? What do we do when we have differences with other people? 
How do we react to other people? How do we relate to people when we differ in matters maybe of preference or practice or appearance? Because I think we do. And in this room, that's a good thing too. We differ so much in areas of practice and preference. What differences do we need to hold fast to? What differences should we be willing to find common ground on or at least come to an agreement about how to relate? In our passage in Acts, Luke is saying something, isn't he? But is he saying that differences don't matter? I don't think that's what he's saying. Or is the message that it's, is it, is it okay to part? Is this, when he's talking about Paul and Barnabas parting, is that an endorsement? Is it okay to part company with our brothers in, in a way that's sharp or contentious or when we have differences? I don't think so. It's not wrong to part company, but there's something that's not quite right here. Is there something else to learn, maybe? Maybe in, in, the, in the first century church, I think they could learn from this, and maybe for today, from, in our church, we can learn, because in our church, we have lots of differences. In, in the world around you, and with other believers outside of our church, we could have lots of differences. What are we to do when we encounter those things? I think Luke's giving us some instruction here. Now, he doesn't very... Very gentle, very Middle Eastern way of writing. It's not the normal direct American in-your-face style. He's, he's showing us by illustration. Let me give you some of the differences that I'm, I'm just aware of. That hopefully you're aware of some of these too, right? In this church, we have different political parties. Gasp, horror. We're not one political party? No. There's not one political party that Christians may belong to. There could be libertarians in this church and Green Party and Republicans and Democrats and some people who don't believe in voting at all. Should we separate? What should we do when we encounter those differences? We like different artists and different art mediums and types and styles of art. There are people who believe in all manners and types of schooling choices for their children. There's a wide diversity of ideas about whether or not how to raise your kids and whether our kids should have phones, should they not, should they date, should they not, should they dance, not dance, should they listen to certain types of music or not. These are just some of the differences. Some here might struggle with physical daily pain and others just can't relate because they're relatively pain-free. And so they might be tempted to think, well, can't you just get, come on, man, like, man up. Don't be a wimp. Is that really how we're to relate to each other? Some are passionate about different forms of exercise and they advocate passionately for them. Some don't want other people telling them how to exercise or to exercise. I thought I heard an amen on that one. That was, that was interesting. I'm <laughs> <laughs> touching it. Those who, there's some people who advocate for abstinence from alcohol and they base their convictions on biblical principles and others in the same church advocate for the enjoyment of alcohol in moderation as a gift from God and based their convictions on biblical principles. Some endorse, might be shocking, smoking an occasional cigar, and others believe this is always and only polluting the body, which is the temple of the Holy Spirit, and you should never do it. There's just some differences here, right? There are different health care choices and practices in the church. There are differences in how homes are structured. There's differences in who works outside the home and who doesn't. And, and some wives here make much more income than their husbands. Some love the outdoors and find great peace there. Others 
think that only pain and suffering exist in the outdoors, where it's a place full of bugs and snakes and hardship. Can't relate to that, but amen for the differences. What do we do with all of the differences? When we encounter differences in how we relate to each other, when we encounter differences in preference, should we go looking for a monoculture church? Is that the answer? Where everybody else is just like us and thinks and acts and dresses just like us too? God forbid. (laughs) I sure hope not. I believe the Bible, though, more importantly, would resoundingly answer no. You see, if, if people with many differences are in the church, though, it does beg the question, how can we relate? How do we get along? How, how, what is the basis for how we relate to each other? Is there a basis for how we relate to each other? How do we navigate through these really messy waters? Because if you're going to be relating to somebody in the church, which we really believe you need to be, it's going to be messy. Differences aren't bad. In fact... Many differences are are God-given for our good, for our benefit, and at times so that we can grow to be more like Jesus. Why does God do that? Well, because we need differences to grow. We need people who are different like us to think differently than us, who react differently than us, so that we can grow not to be more like us, but to be more like Jesus. And the main idea, what, what I think the guiding principle that we're going to see here, the, the main idea of, of, of the passage I think we need to get this morning is that the gospel is to guide us in how we relate to others. And I'm going to explain how we get there throughout the text. The gospel is what is to guide how we relate to others. That's the guiding principle. It's the gospel of Jesus Christ that unites us, that changes us, that saves us, that calls us together. And it's to guide, because of how we've been treated, it's to guide how we treat other people. It's also to guide when we defer for the sake of the gospel. And there's, there's, there's two principles, at least two principles. Boy, you could have several different messages on this passage. But there's at least two principles that I want to draw out that I think are applicable for our church today and And I think that Luke was trying to get across as well. And the first principle that that we're going to look at from the text is that that even when we're right, there is a wrong way to differ. Even when we're right, there's a wrong way to differ. Or maybe put it more simply, maybe you like it more condensed, and you can just say, we can be right but wrong. We can be right but wrong. Look in verse 36, if you will, in your Bible, please. It says, and after some days, Paul said to Barnabas, Let us return and visit the brothers in every city where we proclaim the word of the Lord and see how they are. Paul, he had a good desire to go back to care for the believers in the churches that were started as a result of their proclaiming the word of the Lord. He wanted to go and see how they were progressing in the faith and knowledge of the Lord Jesus. He wanted to encourage them and strengthen them. We know that because that's what he ended up doing is we went about strengthening the churches. Good desires, good motives, right? And then he wanted to go together with Barnabas, his his buddy, his pal, the guy who really found, discovered Paul, if you will, and nurtured the gifts that Paul had and encouraged him. Paul was a notor- I mean, Barnabas was a notorious encourager. What better partner? They had been so successful on the first missionary journey because of Paul's brilliance and rhetoric and understanding the law and the gospel. And, and then Barnabas' care and encouragement. What a great team that made. So Paul says, hey, would you come along with me? Let's go back and encourage these churches. 
And there's a there's good pastoral concern and care for the church. It's the same thing we've been telling you about the, a, a ministry called Frontline um, Missions. Guys like Tim Kazee and others go and they care for churches around the world. It's a noble cause to go and, and provide pastoral care and check up and strengthen, on the, strengthen the churches around the world. It's a great and worthy mission and one we're still called to today. That's why we have a, a partnership with the church in Tokyo. The challenge is, in, in Paul's case, he, he had some definite preferences, didn't he? About who to take with him on this mission. And then verse 37 tells us, if you look in your Bibles again, verse 37 and 38, it tells us that Barnabas, he wanted to take along his cousin, John Mark. Now, and that doesn't tell him this passage, but you find out later that other passages in the, in the scripture that it's his cousin, John Mark. But it says in verse 38, but Paul thought best not to take with them one who would have withdrawn, or that word can somehow, sometimes have the connotation of deserted. It's not a positive word. Someone who withdrawn from them in Pamphylia and not gone with them to the work. So he was shunning work in Paul's perspective. Paul didn't think it was wise. He didn't think it was the best idea. He didn't want to take along with them somebody who had left them when things were difficult. I can understand that. If I'm given a job or a task, I don't necessarily want to take along people and I think, you know, I'm not so sure they're going to stick with me through the end. They're probably going to go home or leave in the middle of this and they're going to leave me hanging. I want to take some people along who, who want to be there. So not a bad thing. And it's actually, it was wisdom probably in this case as well. We don't know why Mark left them originally, but we can gather that Paul was not supportive of, of Mark's departure. And when it says withdrawn or departed, that's kind of a negative word and and then when, when Paul is, or Luke is very gently saying, he didn't go with him to the work. That's an evaluation that he was not a guy who was willing to work hard at this point in his life. Maybe Paul thought Mark was lazy or selfish or maybe spoiled as the son of a very wealthy Jewish woman at the time. We don't know. All Luke wrote is that Mark left him with a sense of deserting. We knew that Barnabas had a desire to take him along. And Paul had a conflicting desire not to take Mark. You ever have conflicting desires with somebody? Maybe somebody in this room, maybe your spouse, maybe a friend. You ever have a conflicting desire? Boy, everybody should shake their head yes right now. I mean, otherwise, you're just, you're just asleep. Um, we don't see any indication. Here's something interesting. We don't see any indication whether Paul's desire was overtly sinful and whether Barnabas' desire was overtly sinful or not. We don't see that at all. Now, at the same time, we, we know that one was right and one was wrong. But in, 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 any, in any kind of conflict, both people can't be completely right. Although we'll see a little later in the passage that it seems that Luke and the church in Antioch, they believe that one way was wiser than the other. One decision was right and one decision was not. But neither was a gospel issue. Do you remember what this passage is coming immediately on the heels of? It's coming immediately on the heels of a gospel issue where when the gospel was at issue, Paul and Barnabas together went and they debated. That's a good thing. But how they resolved that was actually very amicably. And Paul said, you know what? Even though circumcision is not necessary, there are some ways that we need to defer to our Jewish brothers. And so we see a good way of resolving conflict. That's what we saw a couple weeks ago. Now, what's Luke doing? Good way of resolving a gospel conflict in a good way. They were right and they did it right. Now we see that you can be right, like Paul perhaps, but they didn't do it right. They were wrong. You know, I was thinking about over the last 2,000 years, you know, we, we, we've not been freed from conflict. 
um, in the church today, in marriages and sibling relationships and all of life, there are many disagreements where neither perspective is immoral or sinful. Maybe one, though, is more wise than the other. And we're faced with a difficult task. How do you move forward when you have two things that are not necessarily sinful, that are conflicting? What do we do when we disagree on a secondary or maybe a tertiary matter? I don't believe Luke was just writing a section of Acts to explain, how, you know, Paul and Barnabas, they developed separate ministries, and it's not just so how Silas ended up joining Paul on his missionary journeys. Now, there is a redemptive element, too, that show that even in the midst of conflict, God redeemed that. But I think what Luke's writing with another intent, these aren't just interesting anecdotes that he's thrown out about the early church for entertainment, so we can feel better. Oh, you know what? When we have conflict... We get it. Now, there is a little bit of that because we all have conflict. And there are times when you can separate amicably. But this passage, it was relevant for the early church and it's relevant to us in our daily lives as well. You know, disagreements with fellow believers, maybe somebody sitting beside you, your fellow believer in your family, maybe the best of friends, they can arise in our lives. That's not a question. That will happen. It does happen. The question is, how are we going to relate to those with whom we disagree? Will we keep the gospel in mind as we relate to people, or will we assume their motives? Will we be proud and demand our own way? Or will we seek to be humble because we're brothers and sisters in the Lord? What about when we're right? Is it okay to be angry? I was thinking about in my marriage. You know, even at times, the very few times when, I, when, I'm, when I'm right in an argument with my wife, it doesn't justify that right decision, that right action, maybe that right interpretation when I'm bringing, bringing correction. That doesn't justify being wrong in how I respond. It doesn't justify being angry or sharply disputing. question for us is, will we allow sharp disagreements or bitter disputes to arise when there are differences? Are we going to allow those to split open or separate? That's, the, that's the, the connotation of that word separate. It's splitting open of their relationship. They, there was a separation, a splitting open. That's not a, a positive separating of the relationship. Or are we going to seek to treat others as we've been treated in the Lord? If this church is where God has placed you, then you can be assured He's also placed you amongst a bunch of people who are very different. When you looked around, you saw those people, that's your family. And He's done that for all of our good and for His glory. There's a lot of differences, and it can highlight, though, here's the opportunity the differences are. They can highlight brotherly love and affection all the more. As people who are vastly different, they choose to love and defer to each other and, and display Christ-like humility. And, and, and personally, if we were around only people who were just like us, we would never become more Christ-like. If you were around a bunch of clones of you, personally, that'd be frightening for me. Um, not about you, but about me. <laughs> a bunch of clones of me. I know they terrify you too. So... Um, if you were around people who were exactly like you, thought like you, acted like you, made decisions like you, life would maybe be easy before you just, they annoyed the heck out of you. But, but you'd never have to grow. 
You wouldn't be challenged. So it's a wonderful opportunity for us to grow in being more Christ-like. We wouldn't have those opportunities if we weren't different to grow in love or patience or long-suffering or forbearance or kindness or humility. All of those kind of fruits of the Spirit, they're really only cultivated in the context of differences. Think about that for a moment. You can only forbear if there's something to forbear with. There's somebody, you only have to be kind to people that you don't want to be kind to. It's easy to be kind with people. You, know, you don't need that command. If somebody's always kind to you, you don't need to be humble if people aren't being proud around you. You don't need to be patient if you're not tempted to be impatient. You see, these are, differences are God-given for the church, for our good. In the midst of differences, love can flourish as we pursue Like 1 Corinthians tells us, bearing all things, believing all things, hoping in all things, enduring all things. We need to endure. Sometimes we need to endure each other. You might need to endure me this morning as I go on for a little while longer. There's there's always times when we need to endure, to bear with, to, to believe the best about each other. So what if we're right? You know, we can be right in our preference or opinion and desire and yet be dead wrong. As I read verse 39, look down your Bibles again, if you will, with me, please. It it seems that that both Paul and Barnabas, they were wrong in how they dealt with their differences. They were wrong in how they dealt with their desires. Verse 39 tells us, And there arose a sharp disagreement. You could, you could use the words bitter dispute there as well. Not positive. There arose a sharp disagreement so that they separated. Their separation was not because it seemed pleasing to, to them and the Holy Spirit to send out in different teams. They, their separation was not after great prayer and fasting. You see all the other times they're being sent out. It's, it's the Holy Spirit. It's prayer and fasting. There's, there's other ways it's been made clear. What was the way they made it clear? There was a sharp disagreement, a bitter dispute amongst them. So they separated from each other. Now, now God redeemed that. Now, it's encouraging to me because I've had lots of sharp disagreements in my life. I, I'm assuming you have as well. And I know that God can redeem those things. So it says, Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed away to, to Cyprus. So you can, you can almost think, wait a minute, so they had a bitter disagreement, and so they separated. And Mark, I'm taking, I'm, I'm taking Mark. So Barnabas goes away and he sails to Cyprus, his hometown. You know, I was thinking about a really common illustration for this in our society today is, is divorce. When parents break up, they get a divorce. It's always difficult on the children, no matter what, for good reasons or bad. It's even more difficult if there aren't clear reasons why. If mom and dad just say that they don't love each other anymore or maybe they don't like each other anymore, it's, they've just grown apart, how terribly confusing and heart-rending for the kids, isn't it? We've all, we've all seen that. Maybe you've seen that and experienced that personally. It must have seemed to the church in Antioch like their parents were breaking up, right? 
Barnabas went early on when the church didn't have any pastors. He goes and he immediately sees, oh my goodness, I need somebody who can help me teach. He goes and he gets Paul. The church begins to thrive and grow. And here's their two father, fathers in the faith in a sense. And so, but now they see that they're, this team is splitting up. This, the dream team, you know? I mean, if you remember back you know, years and years ago when they first had the first NBA dream team, and, and it, it wasn't such a huge success because they didn't really play together very well. They had the first dream team for the Olympics, and they, they didn't do that great because they really weren't playing together. But then later when they learned to play together, it would have been a shame if you said, no, we're not going to get together a bunch of people who are good at that. We're going to get a bunch of people who are no good. See, the, the church was, was seeing Paul and Barnabas who were very good at pastoring and caring and teaching in the church. And now they see that these, these guys who talk about the gospel, and you know, I, we experience this with other churches. You know, when we talk about the gospel is able to reconcile any differences, and they, yet the two leaders have been telling you these kinds of things. Now they separate because of some differences. What do you do with that? Think about it. Barnabas had supported Paul when everyone else thought it was a bad idea to hang around Paul because he might just kill you. Barnabas didn't just endorse Paul to the apostles. He also went, he, he specifically sought out Paul years later so that Paul could help him establish the church. There was obviously mutual respect between them. They had complementary gifts. They worked together very well. Probably the, the dream team, the best team really of, of any New Testament team who was going and preaching and teaching. And under the leadership together, the church grows to be a major center of Christianity in the first century. God had brought these two men together too. Think about it. Remember back in Acts 13 when they started out for their missionary journey? We see in Acts 13 too, it says, while they were ministering to the Lord and fasting, while they were ministering to the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. God brought them together, right? They've been called together, jointly commissioned by the Holy Spirit, sent out by the church. God had blessed the ministry of them together. It would seem like nothing outside of serious doctrinal error or maybe moral failure could separate these two great men and cause them not to work together any longer. Nothing else should have separated them. After all, they weathered the worst. Think about what these guys weathered, right? They had already weathered the very worst that life and ministry could throw at them together. You think that no differences really could draw these guys apart. You know, they'd, they'd, they'd been beaten Paul had, had, had been stoned by people and left for dead. They had endured affliction and persecution. Paul served under Barnabas humbly. Barnabas then served under Paul humbly. They'd been through thick and thin sickness and deprivation and persecution and major doctrinal disputes with other people. And together through thick and thin, they'd been on the same side. They valiantly defended, they'd upheld the integrity of the gospel in word and in deed. By all accounts, they were brothers just from different mothers. But almost shockingly here, we don't find there's any major doctrinal disagreement between these brothers. It's kind of shocking. There's no moral failure that was divulged that might explain the separation. What we find instead is they're sharply disagreeing or bitterly disputing about a matter of preference. It wasn't that the issue was completely unimportant. It, it, it was. It's just that it isn't an issue that's important enough to be bitter 
about. Now you have to know that this, this great writer and physician, Luke, who's very artistically writing a history and teaching through it gently by example, he's a master of understatement and subtlety. He's writing in a way that demonstrates by truth, uh, by, by example, and so he's gently revealing when people are wrong, and he mercifully and graciously, he avoids speaking negatively about brothers in Christ. And in this case, there's some subtle cues, I believe, in this passage as to what Luke's assessment is of their disagreement. He says this is not a loving, gracious disagreement. This is a sharp or bitter dispute. Now, in the Bible, that's never a positive thing. Disputing is okay, actually. We saw that in a few verses earlier. They disputed. They vigorously disputed. It was about the gospel but it wasn't sharp in the sense of stabbing somebody else. But this is a sharp contention. They aren't contending for the gospel now. They're contending for their preferences. Whether or not to take his cousin along with him. You know, let's imagine that Paul was right and maybe Mark would desert them again. In the end, though, think about it. What, what would have been the dramatic harm if they'd taken him along? If Paul had consented and said, you know what, I don't think it's wise, but I'll defer because you're my brother, we'll take him along. And then afterwards, he's proved right. That's okay. It's not going to stop Paul and Barnabas. Maybe it would have slowed him down a little bit. Maybe this was Paul was concerned about. Let's say Barnabas was right, and Mark was a changed man at this point in life. He was, we see later that he was a changed man. Later on in life, he ends up writing, many years later, the gospel of Mark. So obviously, God changed this guy who wasn't ready to work hard. Would it have harmed Paul to show Mark the same mercy that Paul had been shown and to give him a chance? Mark hadn't killed any Christians after all, like Paul had. In this case, since it was Paul's idea, though, an initiative to go back to the cities, and Paul's kind of taking leadership where they preached before, though, on Barnabas' side, he, he could have easily deferred, right? It was Paul's idea. Paul was going, taking the leadership. Barnabas said, you know what? This is your gig. Let's, I, I'm okay with that. You know, I'm not going to assert my preference here. What's more important is that the gospel goes out, and I want to be a part of that. It wasn't a gospel matter, and either of them could have deferred to each other for the sake of relationship, for the sake of the churches. And they could have as well, though. They could have still separated after prayer, after seeking the Holy Spirit, saying, you know what? I think what God's doing is he's revealing that there may be two different missions here. And, and, And then, now God used it so that Barnabas and Mark, they went their other way. Now, we don't know anything of them after this historically. We don't read again of them. But we know that, boy, God really used it to bring along Silas, who was a very well-educated guy who, who spoke and wrote Greek. He ended up being Paul's amanuensis or his scribe um, when Paul was probably dictating from a prison hole um, to Silas at times. So God really used this redemptively. But it, it could have been approached differently. Sometimes separating is good for the work of the gospel and the sake of the gospel. It's all how you do it, though. And Luke's not endorsing. He's not, he's not saying they shouldn't separate. He's saying that it's not, it's not good. It was a sharp and bitter disagreement. So in this case, it wasn't a gospel matter. Either of them could have deferred to each other for the sake of the churches that they were ministering to. So I don't believe this is a positive separation. This is, look in verse 40. Luke is subtly showing that Paul was in the right. How do we know that? Well, look in verse 40. It says, But Paul chose Silas and departed. Here's where Luke is giving us a really gentle cue 
He says, having been commended by the brothers to the grace of the Lord. What Luke's saying is that Paul was right. He was commended by the brothers. The brothers were in agreement with him, and he was commended by them to the grace of the Lord. And, and there's a contrast here. It's a very Middle Eastern way of writing. He says, Barnabas left, and he, 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 took, Barna, he took John Mark, and he went. So Barnabas left. Paul was commended. Paul was commended by the brothers to the grace of the Lord. You see, even though Paul was right, he was not right to sharply disagree. He was, you can be right. Even, even one of the greatest men of God, aside from, from maybe Jesus, Moses, Abraham, you know, one of the greatest men of God of all times, Paul, he was right, but he was wrong. You see, it's possible for us to be right, but wrong. It's possible for us to relate to other people and to be right about our differences and our preferences, but be dead wrong about how we relate to them. I know for me, to my shame, so many times I've trumpeted, just, I'm just telling the truth, I'm just, I'm just right. And I was dead wrong because I had a crummy attitude. I was proud. You know, Luke has showed us another conflict that they resolved. They were continued together for the gospel. And they deferred. They had dissent. They had debate about whether circumcision was required or not. And it was a gospel issue. And it was probably, if you think about the early part of Acts chapter 15, it was probably the most important debate they could have in the early church was, is the gospel of God's grace alone through faith alone? Or do you have to do works? I would, I would say that's the most critical debate the, the early church ever took up. And yet they resolved it in a way that was God-honoring and actually some concessions that you didn't have to do these other things, not eat meat, sacrifice to idols, but it was in deference out of, out of seeing the gospel go forward and not being a stumbling block. They resolved that issue, a major issue. Now we see not a gospel issue not resolved well. So Luke's giving some compare and contrast here. He's, he's a masterful artist. And then, you know, we, we can see that it's possible for us to be right and yet wrong. And then we can be right biblically. You know, think about it. Maybe you believe it's okay to have a glass of wine, but you can be dead wrong if you cause offense to your fellow brother and sister over a matter of drink. We can be right that the Bible does not speak to some issues of preference and practice, and we are free in Christ. Right? But we can be wrong if we make our freedom in Christ an issue and offend our brother or sister. In Galatians, sometime around this time frame, probably, Paul writes to the Galatians, and he's railing. He's actually got the, reserves the strongest word for the Galatians. He says, Who's bewitched you, you fools? You foolish Galatians. And Paul knows that the teaching of never to call somebody a fool. So he uses some strong language, and he's railing against trusting in our own ability to keep the law in order to be justified or accepted by God. And he's commending the Galatians to their freedom in Christ. All, all of Galatians is really about that. You're free in Christ by the grace of God. He sets you free so that you don't have to earn God's favor anymore. But then, shockingly, in the midst of him saying, you're free. Look in Galatians 5.13. I think we have it for you in the overheads. In the midst of this, he's commending them to their freedom in Christ. That's what all of Galatians is about. 
By God's grace, through faith, you are free. He says, though, for you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, for your own fleshly desires. But through love, serve one another. In the midst of this, maybe Paul is learning a lesson or has seen something. We're free to disagree. We're free to have differences. And we're free to actually dispute. But don't use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, your own desires. But use your freedom so that through love you can serve one another. We're not free to demand our own way. We're not free to have bitter disputes over things that are not gospel issues. So let us ask ourselves, are there any issues where we may be right, but we need to defer Are there areas in our lives where we are free in Christ, but we may need to, through love, serve one another instead of using our freedom to serve ourselves? Luke's shown the reader it's possible to be right and yet wrong, and now he gives us another vignette. This is the second principle that we're going to see very quickly here, is that how we respond when we face differences that do relate to the gospel. He shows us the second principle here. It illustrates how the gospel is to guide our relationships with others, and it's that it's possible to be wrong and yet right, or even if we are wrong, there is a way that is right to differ. Even if we are wrong, and I have wrong in quotes there, I'm going to explain that in a moment. Even if we are wrong, there is a way that is right to differ. Paul circumcised Timothy. Hang on. Isn't that wrong? So even if we are wrong, there is a way that's right to differ. We can can be wrong. We can defer to our brother and sister in a matter of preference, even though we're free. So it's, it's an area that it would be wrong for somebody to say that, that we must do, but we can be wrong so that we are right and are relating and are gospel relating to other people. Now Paul, he's going through the areas we see in verse 41 where they preach, they're strengthening the churches. And in 16.1 we see Paul came back to the town. Think about this, where he'd be stoned and left for dead. Boy, Paul put his own calls on the shelf and went to the town where he was stoned and left for dead before. But clearly his ministry had borne fruit. He encounters Timothy, who was probably a teenager when he first came through about five years earlier. And now Timothy is this young disciple who who is now very mature. In verse 1, it tells us, if you look, look in your Bibles, please, it says, In verse 1 of chapter 16, it gives us a key to the text here. It says, Timothy is the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was a Greek. That's one key. He was son of a Jewish woman. His father's a Greek. The second one is that he was well spoken of by the brothers at Lystra and Iconium. He, he He had a great reputation in these towns. He was well spoken of in these two towns, but Paul wanted to take Timothy with him. You see, Paul saw that, that Timothy had potential as a future minister of the gospel, and he wanted to mentor Timothy to take him along with him. And so in verse 3, if you look in your Bibles again, it says, Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him, and he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those places. Is Paul contradicting himself? Did Luke get it wrong? Did, was, was Luke kind of checking out? Did he forget that he just written a few verses earlier that they were arguing that you should not be circumcised? It's not necessary to become a Christian. And yet now we see that Paul is, is circumcising Timothy? 
Well, it's important to know that in the historical context, this is one of these keys, that the child of a Jewish woman would have been considered a Jew, even though he had a Gentile father. Um, the, the lineage, it would, have, it would have been considered that it wasn't the mother's, the, the child's fault. He came from the mother, he, so he inherited the Jewishness from the mother. It would have been expected for a Jew then to be circumcised. Paul's wanting to take him along. Think about for a second, how did Paul typically do ministry? He goes to the synagogues first. Well, who's in the synagogues, right? Jews. And so he goes to the synagogues and he goes to the Gentiles. And this model, it would have been a constant stumbling block because it says in all the other towns around, they knew his father was a Greek. What they're saying is they knew that his father wouldn't have had him circumcised. And so he wouldn't have been as effective in ministering to the other Jews if it became known, and it was known, that he was not circumcised as a Jew. He he wouldn't have been looked on as a true Jew. He wouldn't have been able to speak into their lives in the same way. He couldn't have related to them. You know, think about what people talk about incarnational ministry in the culture that we're in. It doesn't mean becoming like them, but it means in some ways becoming all things to all men so that we might save some. So maybe you have a neighbor who has interests that you that aren't, aren't ungodly, that aren't unbiblical, that aren't immoral, that you think, you know what, maybe I can take up gardening so that I can, you know, relate to my neighbor who loves flowers. Um, maybe there's some ways that I can die to myself, some preferences that I have, that I, because it's a gospel issue, I want to be more effective, more fruitful for the gospel, and so because of that, there's some things that I might need to lay aside or change or do differently. Maybe my personality needs to change so it's not a barrier to the gospel. Maybe, you know, I have a, a style or preference or way of dressing that because that's not the culture that I'm living in, I need to change the way I dress to defer to people. So Paul, he knows it would cause problems and been a barrier for others receiving Timothy in the gospel message. And so because of the gospel, because of the gospel, he goes and circumcises Timothy. The gospel was guiding his relationships. It was guiding his practice. It was guiding how he dealt with differences. You see, because it was no longer necessary, he was now free to defer. So you might find that you need to defer in areas of works or in areas of preference. Because they're not necessary, you're now free to give up those preferences and and to do works. You might think, how in the world does that make sense? How in the world can Paul do something that's wrong? And yet Luke depicts it as if it was right. It would have been wrong, you see, if Paul had affirmed that circumcision was necessary to be saved. But that's not what he's doing. He's actually still upholding that. And now that it's been clearly established that circumcision is not required, he is using his freedom as an opportunity through love to serve one another. And so now he's lovingly deferring to his Jewish brothers by having Timothy circumcised, although Timothy might not have felt like Paul was being very loving. Um, (laughs) But both of them committed to that because they did not want to be a barrier to the proclamation of the gospel. Do you see, for the sake of freely proclaiming the gospel, Paul and Timothy set aside freedom to serve others. So, Luke is showing us gospel issue, resolved, deferring, non-gospel issue, not resolved right. Another gospel issue, the gospel is to guide how we relate to each other. If our differences, Luke is showing us, will be a barrier to the gospel, we should set aside our preferences and do whatever is necessary to remove any barriers to the gospel proclamation and gospel fellowship. 
Luke's showing that when the integrity of the gospel is at stake, we have to stand firm by insisting no works are required to be saved. And yet, it's right for us to do works that are not required, that you might feel it's wrong, maybe. I don't have to dress a certain way. No, you don't. But you might need to, to reach people who don't dress like you, who dress differently. Maybe people dress down who you are in your neighborhood and, and you're trying to reach them and you're coming to them with a suit and a tie. Well, that's, that's, a, that's a barrier. Give up your preference so that you can minister. Maybe you're in a business environment where there are guys who, although you prefer to wear blue jeans and a, and a blazer, you're not going to be able to reach them as effectively if you're doing that. And so you might need to dress up to, to reach them for the gospel. There's a wrong. It's not right to say that issues of dress or anything, but we can be wrong and really be right. Luke's showing us that it was absolutely not necessary for Timothy to be circumcised. It would have been wrong if anybody insisted it was, but it was right that he was because although it was unnecessary, and it must have been quite difficult for a young man to submit to, it removed a stumbling block of offense to the Jews. And so for the sake of the gospel, they did what was wrong so that they might be right. Timothy took personal cost on himself in order to defer to the weaknesses of others. Paul saw this otherwise now wrong practice as gospel opportunity. Are we willing to take great cost on ourselves and be wrong to defer for the sake of 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 unity in the gospel in the church and for the sake of proclaiming the gospel outside of the church. Look in verse 4. We, we know that Paul wasn't confused because it says, here's what they did. He has Timothy circumcised. In verse 4 it says, And they went on their way through the cities. And they delivered to them for observance the decisions that had been reached by the apostles and elders who were in Jerusalem. So, no, they weren't going back on the circumcision thing. They were saying, you don't have to be circumcised to be saved, but we circumcised Timothy so he can relate. So this is a non-essential matter, and they used their freedom to serve others by deferring to him. So the result was in verse 5, we see, it says, so the churches were strengthened in the faith, and they increased in numbers daily. A result of them sacrificing their freedom in Christ that Christ had won for them. Christ had won their freedom from being circumcised, Right? They sacrificed their freedom for the good of others, and Timothy gave up his difference so that the churches could be strengthened and increase. We can be right and yet wrong in our relationships, and we can be wrong and yet right. What makes the difference is whether or not the gospel of Jesus Christ is guiding how we relate to other people. I believe the Holy Spirit would really have some, some application for us from these two accounts. The gospel is to guide how do we relate to each other. The question for all of us is not, it's not whether we have differences. It's are, are we willing, not, we, we see that they were willing to take a stand when, when the issues affected the gospel directly, and, I, and we do need to do that. But at the same time, we have to ask, does the gospel guide us in giving up our preferences and deferring in areas that aren't gospel matters? I want you to ask yourself some questions. We have, I have them for you on the overheads, actually. They'll be in the notes, too, on, on the website, so you don't have to rush to take them down. Am I letting any preference? Ask yourself this with me. Am I letting any preference or difference with, with another believer in my church get in the way of my fellowship with them? 
have I let any preference or difference with another believer in, in, in my church get in the way of my fellowship with them? If so, you may be right, but you're wrong. What area of my life is a stumbling block to my brothers and sisters in Christ? There, there may be some. I'm not assuming there is, but there may be some rough edges that we need to smooth out so we're not a stumbling block. There may be practices that we are free that we may not need to highlight. Is there something or some preference or some desire that I'm unwilling to give up for the sake of the gospel or for the sake of the unity of the body of Christ? Is, is there something in your life, is there a practice or a preference or a difference that you are unwilling to give up for the sake of the gospel unity and the sake of gospel proclamation? If so, what does that say about what's ruling me? My selfish desires or my desire to serve and love God and love my neighbor? Maybe ask yourself, is there an area where I've had or am having a bitter or sharp dispute that's not a matter of the gospel? If so, how can I respond and humble myself for the good of the other person? You don't need to be best buddies with everybody. You do need to love as you've been loved by God. Ask God, and I would ask you to do this this week, ask God to reveal where you might need to go and ask forgiveness for how you've separated from another person in your heart and your actions, maybe because you're bitter or you've had a dispute with somebody. Maybe you feel like you're right, but you're wrong. For the sake of the gospel, be wrong so that you might be right in him. Ask God to show you if you've let differences and preferences cause bitterness or resentment or separation from another person. And if he reveals that it has, go. Go and be at peace with the other person as far as it depends upon you. If we've parted ways with somebody and it was necessary for the sake of the gospel, for the sake of mission, then let's follow Paul and Barnabas's and Luke's example. Something else striking here. They don't speak ill of each other. They separate. They have a sharp disagreement. It's not right. But when they go their separate ways, we don't hear Paul bad-mouthing Barnabas. We don't see Barnabas bad-mouthing Paul. And actually, Luke is very gently in, in, in how he corrects, and he's merciful. So maybe you've had a separation from somebody. Don't go talking about them. Don't speak ill of them. Don't tell them about the disagreement. They don't need to know. It's between you and God alone. Let that be the cross that you bear for his sake and for the sake of your brother or sister. You don't need to be right. You can be wrong. From Corinthians and Colossians, there, there is something redemptive here too. It seems that Paul and Barnabas resumed their relationship later on sometime. I'm glad to see that as a believer. Later in his letter to Philemon, Paul then, he also refers to Mark as one of his fellow workers who was with him and who he greeted the church together with Mark. How cool is that? He thought Mark was worthless to go you know, on the work of ministry. And now he's, not only does he not think that, he's, he's Paul's a fellow worker with me. And then just before he died, his last letter to Timothy, his, his last letter before he was executed, most likely, he instructs Timothy in 2 Timothy 4.11. He says, get Mark. Get Mark and bring him with you for he's very useful for too many ministry. Paul, he had obviously reconciled with Barnabas and later Mark and 
And Mark was a good choice for ministry, even if it wasn't the right timing and wise then. And we know that Paul learned his lesson. We see in Romans 12, 14, Paul writes, bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. I wonder if Paul was thinking of his disagreement with Barnabas when he's writing these words. He's convicted and he's writing. He says, never be conceited. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as depends upon you, be at peace. Live peaceably with all. So far as it depends upon us, are we living peaceably with all? In our areas where we have preferences or differences, Will those things cause others to not listen to or perhaps reject the gospel or break fellowship with us? Are we willing to give our preferences and differences up even if it will cost us something as it cost Timothy? It might be a painful sacrifice for us. Are we willing to give up fighting for our political affiliation or our pet cause or our hobby or our sport or our diet or schooling choice, or whatever it is we're tempted to argue about on social media, if it's a gospel barrier to our brothers and sisters, are we willing to give that up? Those things seem rather petty in light of the fact that Jesus gave up his life for us. They don't seem significant in that light. Here's the good news of the gospel, the good news that's meant to guide us. If you place your faith in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, you are trusting in him for life, then you've been forgiven by God of so much and far much more than you even know. That's good news. All of your sins, past, present, and future, have been forgiven. All of us receive the complete undeserved mercy and the unearned kindness of God. The good news is that God is forbearing and patient with us. Isn't that good news? That God showered us with his grace and he continues, it says, to show us his mercies that are new every morning, morning by morning. His mercies are new. The good news is that now if you've placed your faith in Jesus, that God is rich towards you, not in wrath, but rich in love. When we were unlovely. He's faithful when we are unfaithful because of this good news. This is the good news that's meant to guide how we relate to believers and unbelievers alike. The question for us is whether or not the gospel is guiding us in how we relate to each other. By God's grace, let us all seek to let the gospel guide our relationships with each other and with the world so that we can see not only the church strengthened, but see many come to faith in him. Amen? Good, and ask the band to come up for a moment. If you could stand, please.